Hello everyone, welcome back to our second episode of Shattered Gradients with Anish Singhani and Brendan Matush. Today we have a special guest, Jackie Zhao. Jackie, why don't you introduce yourself? Alright, for sure. Uh, hey everyone, my name is Jackie. Uh, I'm currently a grade 12 student uh, in Vancouver. Uh, some of my work in the past has been focused on doing some natural language processing um, and, stuff in this, and stuff like that. Um, currently this year I'm working on a project related to uh, using uh, AI to pilot an autonomous drone swarm. So we'll see where that leads us. I'm glad, I'm excited to join you guys today. So this week, we're going to be talking a bit about the ethics of AI and how this influences applications of AI and deep learning that we see all across the industry. So we're going to be talking about why it's important for AI to be connected to humans and for humans to define the training data and other things that go into AI. We're going to be talking about some examples of how this can go wrong in certain cases and how this has happened in industry. And then uh, we're going to finally talk about how we can actually solve these problems and how we can make AI more relevant to humans and more likely to, to do essentially what humans want it to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess, Jackie, why don't you introduce us a little bit to the key problems of why AI needs to be human? Yeah, for sure. I think um, a really big part of it is how media portrays AI. Um, a lot of the times, every time there's a new AI uh, headline, it's always like often you see the picture of that Terminator that's always there. Um, and it always portrays usually AI in very negative light. Like, oh, AI is going to take over our jobs. AI is going to eventually kill us all as hu the entire human race. And while to some extent those um, concerns are valid, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, they see AI as being something that's cold and incapable of feeling and emotion and as such capable, incapable of making ethical decisions, right? And I think this is the inherent problem that we have to either tackle this in media representation or make it more clear that how we design these systems is reflective of what we as researchers uh, feed forward into these networks, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely true, especially since since I think there's kind of a, a misunderstanding of how AI actually works. And pe people think that it is a much more rational, conscious kind of thing when really it's it's closer to a function approximator that we give some training data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of it is also how the AI is released to the public. Like, due to the nature of the research, most of the time when any sort of conversational AI has been made public, it was done with the intention of training itself on the public's data. And, of course, people will be people, internet trolls... <laughs> put in not so great training information and those AIs learned from those internet trolls because it's going to learn to imitate what it's what it's shown. And the AIs that were trained on real or synthetic training data or trained by themselves haven't seen that much public viewing yet. Yeah, I think a really good example of this, if you guys recall, is an example of uh, Tay.ai, which was released, I think, in uh, 20, 2016 it was. Uh, a while back. So it was a project developed by Microsoft to kind of imitate a 19-year-old teenager girl uh, on Twitter. And supposedly it had like simulated something like 40 million conversations without any major incidents in training. But when it was released to the public, obviously people will be people and being the kind of dumpster fire that Twitter can be sometimes. Um, it had a lot of uh, misogynistic, racist uh, comments and had to be shut down, unfortunately. 
And that really just seems like an example of why the training data for something has to be regulated. Because if someone gets into your training data, they control your AI. Because the AI is just a pure function of the training data. So yeah, I guess this sort of leads into another one of the issues that we're going to talk about with um, why AI has to be connected to humans. And that is that um, the, the distribution of data that we feed into this ultimately affects the predictions. And we can see this not just in things like chatbots, but also in um, look at AlphaGo, for instance, how AlphaGo, when, when playing against itself to learn completely from scratch, it learned a, a completely different set of moves and strategies than it did um, when it did, rather when it was playing against humans, uh, as opposed to just, just learning to play against itself. But that does bring up a very interesting point. If something is to learn to play against itself, it gets no connection to the human world, which means that it can learn to be better than humans. But if your intention is for it to work with humans, that may not always be the best idea. Like there was one, a uh, two AIs were designed to communicate with each other in the most efficient method. And as expected, they developed their own method of communication which led to people believing that they were trying to prevent the humans from seeing their communication, when in reality, it was just not trained to do anything other than find the most efficient method. Right. Yeah, I think a really big part of that is like defining the problem scope, right? Um, because AI yeah, is pretty much just a very complex mathematical model. It's always going to try to find the minimum to minimize that cost function, right? Uh, there's many cases where you have to design your environment very well for uh, your AI to really learn. Um, I don't quite remember the title of the paper, but there was one that was um, teaching, I think it was teaching a bipedal robot to be able to uh, stand and walk a certain distance. Um, no, no, it was a different one, sorry. It was like trying to land a rocket, I think. And the way that AI maneuvered it was so it was able to get a speed high enough to cause an overflow within the actual program and have a negative speed to be able to descend safely. And that was the fastest way you could actually do that. And I found that really interesting because it's definitely not something a scientist would have thought of beforehand. And yeah, I was still able to figure that out. So, Yeah, I think that's, that's another argument for uh, including more human training data and these kinds of things. And that's especially true with things like adversarial networks where where people you know the the, the 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 simple function optimization will often produce a result that is very unintuitive to humans something that's totally different from what they would expect yeah and even in the case of when even like how Jackie said with the simulation but even when it's not a simulation you can sometimes hit the same problem like if you, I was reading about someone who's trying to use reinforcement learning to control blood sugar and their network, since their cost function was defined in such a way that there was a cost on just existing, which was the cost of running the pump itself, mm -hmm. the, the neural network found that the most efficient way was to just allow the person to die without having any actual operation. And in somehow that would create a more efficient neural network than actually trying to maintain the desired parameter. Mm -hmm. Which just shows that without controlling the cost function, it can go crazy. Yeah. 
I think yeah. a lot of people have this misconception about AI where it's like you directly give it some data and it's able to figure out the answers to it um, by itself. Um, while that may be the case in certain types of unsupervised uh, like learning, a lot of the time that we have to we do have to like design our uh, cost functions implicitly such that we optimize for a certain objective. And if that objective is something that's like, uh, for example, not chosen in the best ethical sense, then that AI, of course, isn't going to be of that standard as well. Yeah, so actually connecting back to our previous um, mention of uh, generative models, actually, um, for listeners who, who are not familiar with generative models, I'll just give kind of a, a very quick overview. They're essentially um, a neural network that rather than generating just you know a classification or a regression output you will have a network actually generate an entire image or an entire sample of data and often this sample of data will then go into another network that will do something with it and this can be um this can be an adversarial method uh, as it would be for you know detecting document forgeries and those sorts of challenges and mm-hmm. they, they can be used in many other cases too and one of the examples is you can think of it as a generative model when, when people try to, for instance, given an image classifier, try to change the classification using a simple function optimizer like gradient descent while changing the inputs the least possible. And this can lead to, to some very unintuitive results. I think, yeah. uh, I think one of you had an example for that. Yeah, there was an interesting example of this where they effectively adversarially created not just altering an image, but they were able to create a physical object that looked to humans like one thing, but was classified as a different. At ICML last year, a group of researchers showed one that could fool a neural network. They 3D printed a turtle with a special pattern on it, which to a human looked perfectly benign. But when ran through a neural network, viewing the physical object in any way through a camera, it detected it as a rifle, which it definitely was not. And if it was done the other way around, where a weapon was disguised as a benign object, this could be used to create cause serious havoc. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to note that adversarial examples aren't just limited to AI and machine learning. Um, like visual allusions to humans as well as well are also called adversarial examples, um, and auditory ones too. For example, there was a thing a while back, it was like a Yanni versus Laurel. That was a really good uh, adversarial example for um, humans as well. It's like, it's a very similar problem. Yeah, I think adversarial stuff can apply in anything, humans, regular algorithms, but in machine learning, it's especially important since we don't really know what's going on inside the algorithm. So there's no easy way to determine whether an adversarial example will be able to trick the system or not, since it's almost a black box of a system. Yeah, that's true. And and although there are some cases in which um, one common way to, to slightly open up the black box would be to um, essentially use backpropagation in that we, we, we calculate how much the output of each neuron influences the final output and in which direction and to propagate this very back to the input layer and then to tell us how much each of the input pixels influences the output. And you kind of can think of that as on which sections of the image the network is focusing. But but I think we had, um, of course, this is rather limited in, in its ability to give us 
meaningful insight into how the network's working. I think it's interesting. I'm not sure if you, um, there was a really good video released by uh, Two Minute Papers a few, uh, I think a few weeks ago called The Bitter Lesson. And in this, uh, it outlines a lot of the learnings about um, what the modern researchers in AI have come up with is, is the fact that um, structures that are generally, machine learning algorithms that are generally less structured actually tend to perform better, especially um, uh, with the increasing compute power that we have access to today. Um, it's like, for example, the original chess brute force algorithms were very um, based on human intuition. Like what we thought was the current best method to move forward actually wasn't the best method for the AI to learn its best way to conquer the solution. And a lot of this really resurfaces today as we begin to move on to more complex tasks like emulating human speech or um, recognizing speech or even any of those likes. Uh, OpenAI um, is finding a lot of success with just having really larger scale networks that, are, that don't really follow any kind of, um, I guess, human intuition, but let it learn from scratch. What we're talking about here is essentially letting compute power replace human collection of data or, or whatever you may have. And that's fine in games like Go or chess where you have a simple goal, which is to win, and the game has a set of strict defined rules. But that is totally inapplicable in something like generation of human speech because you know if you have a human speech transcription network, of course, if you optimize on it, what it's going to create generatively is going to be totally different from anything that's actual human speech. So at a certain point uh, in those kinds of subjects, you have to tie it back to the humans, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That seems like it possibly something like a reinforcement learning might help there where instead of having a certain goal, you almost try to, instead of reinforcing to aim for a certain parameter, you reinforce for optimal interaction with humans, somehow find a way to quantify that would probably could be a way of doing that. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I had actually, I'm not sure I will have to look into that in terms of using reinforcement learning to actually interact with humans more effectively. That's a, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I think this aspect of bringing reinforcement learning, not just from simulation aspect but into the real world is something that's pretty interesting um there was an example by also OpenAI a while back about using uh re reinforcement learning to interact with a physical object using a biomechanical hand um and that was done without any like labeled data of any sort that was completely um based on optimizing towards an objective and i think just things like that especially when we get to um, tasks which we don't have a lot of tr training data for is going to really be the way to go. In this case, I think it would come down to how we define the objective. Like, if it's some, if it has anything to do with humans, your objective is likely not going to be easy to define. Like with the object, you have certain parameters you can say, like distance moved or strength of grip on the object. But with a uh, human interaction, we'd need to find a better metric of doing so, possibly user engagement or those kinds of metrics that a lot of businesses use for things like testing their product, maybe have those kinds of metrics for an AI. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay, so 
Now we're going to talk a little bit about a project that Jackie has worked on in the past that is very much related to the, the challenges and goals of ethical applications of AI, which is related to speech transcription for people who are hearing impaired. So, so Jackie, why don't you give us a quick introduction to that project? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess the inspiration for this project really started, I think it was like two summers ago um, on the bus ride. Um, I met a deaf person on the bus. Her name was Beth. And it was interesting because I was asking if she was, uh, the seat next to her was available, but she didn't respond the first time. Um, and she gestured to her ear and eventually we found out a way to communicate over text, um, with me typing on her phone. Um, and I was really interested in the way that she was able to communicate with the world around her and interact with, I guess, the hearing world. And it really got me thinking about what we could do to, I guess, involve, because at the time I was first starting to get into AI, how it could involve using AI uh, to, I guess, create a solution to, um, and I guess, improve the way that people like Beth perceive the world around her. And for me, this, I wanted to, I guess, research the problem a bit more. So I spent some of that time um, in Vancouver asking a few of the local hearing centers about uh, this and the people who go there, what they think about um, a solution like this. And interestingly, a lot of them told me that they actually didn't really want a solution like this um, because within the deaf culture, uh, the hearing impaired culture, there is a very prominent sense of like, yes, I'm proud of being uh, deaf. I'm proud of being hearing impaired. It's part of who I am. And it's, I guess, kind of rude to intrude and assume that that's a problem that they want to be solved, right? And it was really challenging for me because I know there was people who, who did want that problem to be solved and those who didn't. So I had to be very careful into um, making sure that this is a problem that um, only applied to a certain amount of people and who I wanted to solve for that select subsection and making sure that this solution really applied to them. And uh, do, you, do you want me to talk a little bit more about, I guess, like the technical aspect or? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, I guess, why don't you connect it back a little bit to what we were talking about before? You know, how did you, how, how did you, A, collect training data for it, B, figure out that it was actually doing what you wanted it to do rather than, than picking up some certain bias from the training data, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, the training data set that I used for this was a combination of the Timit data set, which is quite old. It was uh, something, it was like early 1970s, I think it was, recorded by Textus Instruments at MIT. It was for reading from books. It was a combination of that data set and uh, some other one about reading newspapers. So at the time, I was first starting to get into machine learning. So I was trying to find the most accessible data sets to me as possible. Um, I didn't really have in mind this consideration of, um, oh, is this able to really best represent the kind of people who are um, trying to communicate with people who are hearing impaired? For me, it was more of a sense like, could I get this project working and off the ground? And I think that's also a mistake I kind of made on my end. Um, because for me, getting that training data was pretty much just like going on the internet and downloading a data set. And then using that um, in a model that uh, was essentially a modification of uh, something called the recurrent neural network with uh, connectionist temporal classification, which is a pretty popular model for used for speech recognition. And I modified the layers a bit for that. And 
it worked really well for my application. Um, so yeah, that's essentially how I came up with my model. It's interesting. So, so I absolutely, yeah, I, I do think that um, for a lot of projects, people will tend to collect data sets on the internet. And I, I guess that that can be, you know, that can be a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. But I guess since, since it relates to, to, um, to more degree to your project than to many other projects, why don't you tell us a little bit about the human interface as it relates to your project and, and like how it actually connected to the people that would be using it? Yeah, for sure. So the main, I guess, aspect of the device was the fact that it was able to transcribe speech to Braille. Um, it was, I wanted to be more of like a tactile experience kind of thing, um, where it was a wearable device where it, the device would be listening to human voices around it and being able to transcribe that to Braille. So the user could feel that on their skin. Um, it was interesting because I went doing this project, I encountered a lot of something that's called the cocktail problem, which you might've heard, um, which is a really big problem in uh, computer and natural language processing, which basically says that uh, it's a lot harder for computers to distinguish different voices apart um, and recognize who's speaking uh, when. And that was really a problem for me because to us, people who are able to, um, I guess, uh, hear, it's a lot easier to, uh, I guess, listen to the different characteristics within different people's voices and recognize people from that. Whereas it's very different to get that same kind of representation within a tactile form. Right. Um, and I guess, yeah. I've heard of that being, um, a similar kind of issue in which I guess it's technically difficult to, to distinguish the features that humans tend to cue on is, um, people who use hearing aids. I have heard that they, essentially do humans take advantage to a great degree of the sorry I'll, I'll cut that um the human ear takes advantage to a great degree of directional data as in who is speaking in front of you and is able to more effectively distinguish voices in that way and that that data is kind of removed when you use something like a hearing aid which is not able to fully perceive all of this Mm-hmm. It was interesting because when I was building this prototype, I had many, I guess, different ideas in mind for how I really want to achieve this solution. Um, this was one of few which was in- directly encompassing turning sound direct- sound directly into, I guess, text text information because you're converting it into Braille. Um, there were a few other ideas I did consider. Um, there was a video on a guy who made... Um, a vest that was able to turn sound into directional vibrations. Um, and users in that experiment were actually able to um, understand speech from the vibrations of the chest, uh, like the vest, within around six or seven days of using it, which I thought was really interesting. It really <laughs> shows the power of the human's brain to adapt to new input data, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Like, I saw a picture of your Braille thing and it seems like a very practical solution that it feels like anyone could pick that up and use it. Even if you lose the directional information, it's still hugely better than having no information at all. And I think that it'll be a while until we get to having perfect equity between 
those who are impaired and those who are not in that regard. But the closer we get, the better. And I think just having that information is already an incredible feat. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's really, I guess, misperceived about this uh, problem is like the hearing impaired don't actually have no information at all. They're actually most of the time pretty well able to read someone else's lips when they're talking usually. Um, and I think that's mo that's the most common method of communication between the hearing impaired and the normal hearing, uh, people with normal hearing. And it's interesting because once these hearing impaired people tell the hearing people that they are hearing impaired, oftentimes they exaggerate their speech patterns, making it slower or exaggerating their mouth movements, which actually makes it harder to read. So keeping in mind this fact, um, I wanted to create more of a solution that's kind of more discreet in the sense that it would be wearable um, and while allowing them to better understand those same sounds, right? Um, so that's what I most um, mainly focused on within this project. So I think that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thanks, Jackie, for joining us. And again, thank you for designing our incredible Shattered Gradients logo for the <laughs> podcast. No problem. And we'll see you all next week. All right. Thanks again.